We're going to look at James chapter 4, and I'm going to pick up where our, our brother Kirk, who was just doing the announcements, left off. Uh, so grateful for Kirk, by the way. Uh, I hope you understood that he had very short notice preaching last weekend. I gave him about 48 hours from the time that I was not feeling well until the, he had to preach, and I thought he did a great job, and I'm especially appreciative to really continue Yeah, amen. Kirk, wherever you are. His message was titled Pursuing Humility. And it's worth, before we get into where we're going to be in James chapter 4, it's worth thinking about how he got there. Because the chapter starts with a call to lay down your arms. Where do wars come from? Why are we arguing? And the answer to the way that there's conflict amongst believers and amongst neighbors and amongst people that uh, just rub shoulders together, the, the answer was pursue humility. Allow, draw near to God. Allow the presence of God to bring you to a place where you understand that if God is for you, who can be against you? And we're going to continue that theme And take it one step further, because in the call to pursue humility, there is then a call to practice humility. And the reason that this is really an extension of Kirk's uh, uh, teaching is because look where he left off. James chapter 4, verse 10. He says, James, to to his audience, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. So this verse is what we're going to talk about all morning. And this is one of those verses that can come at you so quickly, and it can also come to you in a way that is almost desensitizing your ears because you've heard it so often that you miss the profound meaning of what James is getting at. He is offering us a way of life that is the point of following Jesus. Jesus says, follow me, I give you life and life more abundant. James says, in humility, you humble yourself before God and he will lift you up. And we pause there. Because this is the point. This is what you're after. In the depth of your heart, there is a desire to be lifted up. It's inside human nature to look for and strategize ways that you can be lifted up. And I'm, I'm, I'm using the phrase over and over again to explain something that is, is somewhat difficult to really grasp because we're so used to it. Everything we do is a desire to elevate our lives. It's why we pursue education. It's, it's even in the words we use for career pursuits with the corporate ladder, or it's the way we feel about our lives. It's like, are you in good spirits? Are your spirits up? Or are you understanding, you know, what God has for you? And the opposite is true. Like, we, we want to avoid feeling down. We don't want to be pushed down in life. We don't want to find ourselves at the bottom of the, the status or the social classes. There is this struggle inside of us that, that wants to figure out how this human desire to be lifted up works. And the answer this morning is paradoxical because it's very different than what you're drawn to through temptation. The answer this morning is, if you humble yourself before God, by faith, trust that in going low, he'll bring you high. That in the the pursuit of humility and then practicing all of the ways that God gives us opportunity to be humbled, this is the way of following Jesus to find that desired outcome of being lifted up, the steady ground of life, the good spirits, the hope, the satisfaction, the life and life more abundant. To, To get there, James is now going to give us the rest of this chapter to practice overcoming 
the, the antithesis of this, that if it's not humility, your human heart will find something else to be lifted up by. And there are two categories that James will walk us through in this chapter, and we're going to look at them this week and next week. So the, the title of today's message is Practicing Humility, Continuing Where We Left Off. And the first part of that, in just two verses this morning, will be that we practice humility with people. That we're humbled with people. And it's one of those ways that James takes these surprising turns as you studied it. Don't you wish you could just understand humility by studying the Bible, knowing God, and then kind of just moving on with your life? Does it have to does it have to include people? Doesn't it get a little messy when we actually measure our progress by people? But in fact, James is going to go right into a lesson that says, humble yourself, be exalted, and practice with the people next to you. Next week, which will be even more exciting for some of us, depending on your personality type, it's that time of year. We're in January. We're still thinking through the, the plans we have for our lives. And next year, James is going to say, practice humility with all of the ways that you plan your life. And so if you're a planning type or if you're just someone who has, you know, want to get, you want to get your hands on the steering wheel, next week we're going to practice humility with plans. But this week it's all about people. And to really flesh out this theme, we just need two verses after verse 10, 11 and 12. So read along with me. This is all we'll cover this morning. But as is true of the book of James, it is very rich. So you'll be surprised at how much we can draw from just two verses. Verse 11, do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. So the first, the first moment of teaching that James will follow up this call to be lifted up by the humility we find in the sight of God is in relation to how we speak about people and how we judge people. And if you've been around the teaching of the book of James over the course of these last few months, you know that this is not the first time this theme comes up. In fact, just a chapter ago, James chapter 3, look what James says about the tongue. We kicked off our new year. The new year, new us. Our resolution is going to be the way we speak because it came up in James. James chapter 3, verse 9. With our tongue, we bless our God and our Father, and with it, we curse men who has been made in the, in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. James says there's this tendency we have in one sense to bless God and turn around and look at all of the God-bearing image creation and curse them. And so this morning, this is a, another indictment for all of us as we came in to bless God. We praised him. We sang his, his goodness. It's like you're good, God. You're moving when I don't see it, God. And now we all are going to be called once again to think about how that actually plays out in relation to the people of our lives. What does it mean to praise God and bless people? And I'm indicting myself as well because now I open the word. I'm preaching the word. I'm saying, God, you're good. Your word is true. It's alive. Speak to us. Cleanse us. Shape us by it. And what do I do in relation to the humility I have, not just before the word, but before people? And some of you are thinking, didn't we just study this? It's like, do we really need to cover it again? One lady that was leaving first service said, I could hear that message every week, and I'm really old. 
And I was like, okay, well, that's great. Um, let me use myself as an example as to why this is something that we can't outrun. When it comes to really knowing who God is calling us to be, his design for our lives to be humbled and then lifted up, and it starts once again with how we relate to others with our words. The day after I preached the message, so three weeks ago, I'm exhorting all of you about the tongue. That was on a Sunday. On a Monday, I had one of the best fights I'd ever been in with my wife. I'd, I'd say it's a top three. It was so good. It was like, it was, there was just so many amazing, pervasive, hurtful words that were just coming to my mind. And I was determined to get all of them into her ears. It was just a word salad of everything the opposite of what I had just preached. And I imagine I'm not the only one that in the last three weeks has looked back and thought, I still have some work to do. There's still things that are being worked out in the way that I relate to other people. And so today, as we think about cashing in the promise of God, you live a humble life, and by faith, God will put you where he wants you, and it will be unstoppable compared to anything else in the offerings of the world. But to live that out, we have to judge our humility in relation to one another. James will give us actually three wise sayings as to how this will work with our life. And you often hear James compared to the book of Proverbs. And it's, it's a valid comparison because James is full of wisdom and wise saying and things that almost come into your, to your reading as riddles, which is the, the Proverbs, the enigma, the riddles of life that the, the word of God will solve. And so this morning, in these two verses, I'm going to pull out three Proverbs that are given to us by James to help us understand how we are humbled in relation to one another to overcome pride and to allow God to exalt us and not the alternative. The first one is this. It says, the first proverb that James will give us this morning he who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. So like a good proverb, this is not something that is quickly digested. This needs to be thought about. I encourage you to meditate about meditate this. And like a good proverb, we have to go slow as we try to understand what James is saying. He says, you speak evil against your brother and you judge them. And then you also are judging the law. So what is he getting at? Whenever we talk about judgment in the word, because Jesus gives us a warning against judging others, James is, is clearly giving us a warning against judging with an evil intention. We also give a disclaimer to say, God does not say to never judge anything. This is not one of those proof text verses to say, I live my life, only God can judge me, leave me alone. The church exists to offer wise counsel, to sharpen one another, to use your discernment on how the word of God could lift someone else in, in love as you exhort them. What James is getting at is judgment with evil intention. Here's how one commentator qualifies this. This is not to rule out civil courts and judges. Instead, it is to root out the harsh unkind, critical spirit that continually finds fault with others. This is the judgment of the day, that wherever you go, there's something you're doing that someone else can find fault in. And when you look around, 
There is a temptation to be elevated by being better than someone else because there's a lot of stuff worth judging. There's a lot of ways that people's behavior is just weird or wrong or clearly not good. Um, Here's how a comedian, and like all good comedians, philosopher of our day put it. His name was George Carlin. Uh, I I was a little young for George Carlin. I knew him from the uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. But here's a quote for you to know him by. It says, think of how stupid the average person is and realize that half of them are stupider than that. That's the world we live in. The average, the average stupidity, and 50% of people are even stupider than that. So you look around, you're like, wow, there is a lot of stupid people that I can give some really wise judgment to. And that is a philosophy for the world. There's, we live in a world that is full of judges making judgment calls for people that are doing things that they're really good at and they're doing them wrong. Here's a Christian version of that, or here's something for our little tribe. Have you ever driven around town and seen this bumper sticker? I've got nothing against God. It's his fan club I can't stand. These are people that are saying, God's good. It's like, okay, I've got nothing against the idea of a moral moral lawgiver or the tenets of the faith, or even the teachings of Jesus seem wise and, and, and they seem prudent, but I'll tell you the problem. It's the fanatics. It's the people who follow him. It's not the good God who made everything good in his creation. It's the people who make good things bad. And sometimes, if you're like me, you look at that bumper sticker, or you hear that sentiment, or you, you get an idea of that conversation, and you think, I actually kind of agree with you. The, 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 the tribe is weird. God is awesome, and people are strange. And you can look around and think, yeah, I almost feel shy to call myself a Christian nowadays because there are so many weird Jesus followers. And you can be pulled into the tide of public opinion and start talking about the church in third person. And when you do that, you've lost the plot because you are the church and you are part of a tribe and you are following Jesus to a fault. You are not perfectly doing anything. And the idea that James is going to warn us against that we have to be mindful of and by the Holy Spirit be cleansed of is to think that we're on the good team and there are a lot of weird Christians that are on the bad team. And you think, this is, man, if, if only more people came to Calvary, Boise, we teach the word, nice balance, spirit-led with a seatbelt. And yet there are so many strange people out there that are doing it weird and they're doing it wrong. And now we are starting to walk down the road of being lifted up in the wrong way. James says, you you get lifted up, you get elevated, you get put on solid ground, you get cared for by the shepherd and green pastures and still waters, not by finding the good tribe and pointing out the bad one, but by being humble in the sight of the Lord and not speaking evil of the brethren and not judging those that you think you're better than. This morning, we'll look at three wise sayings, Proverbs of James, and we'll also look at a parable of Jesus that will take wise sayings and put them into story form. One of the the amazing things about Christ is that he brought ideas and teaching and philosophy to the world that is too great for the mind, so he gave it to us in stories so we could understand it. And there is a story that James is calling us to to help us understand how we are all tempted to be lifted up by our tribe against another. And it comes in Luke chapter 18. So uh, read along with me. Jesus is setting up the scene, as the gospel writer Luke will tell us, in a very similar dilemma that James is warning us against. Look what he says in the beginning of this parable. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. 
He spoke this parable to them, to some of them, who trusted in themselves. That would be pride. That's the antithesis of humility. That they were righteous and despised others. This is the idea that if you really want to justify yourself, you can't justify yourself before God. He's perfect, he's holy, he's sinless, he's faultless. And there's a part of you that knows that you're, that, you're not that. You are full of sin that's being cleansed. So to justify yourself, rather than be humbled in the sight of the Lord, you're prideful in the sight of your neighbor. You look at the one who's not quite far along as you are, and you think, man, compared to them, I'm actually doing really well. And so Jesus tells us a story. It's not a true story, but it's a story to help us understand how we're getting it wrong because he breaks some rules in the story. He breaks some rules as to which characters play which role. Look what he says. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, you don't have to hear the gospel preached long to hear the reputations of these two characters. The Pharisee was a reputation of a religious person that had a lot of zeal that was sometimes used to judge others. And in some ways, the Pharisees should be commended. They loved the word. They loved to understand the law. They wanted to live out righteousness according to the law. Those are all good things. But the law was never meant to save. Religion is not what saves you. Your activity as part of our religious gathering, which we always walk a tightrope when we gather to study the word, because in one sense this is religious, and in another sense this is an opportunity for the Spirit to speak. But religion doesn't save. And that is why the zeal of the Pharisee has to be, be pointed at something else. The law won't save him, so what will? It says that he was going up there with a tax collector. The Pharisee's all about religion. The tax collector's there to do business in, in the character stereotypes. And here's how Jesus surprises the listeners. This Pharisee stood and prayed with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. God, I am so grateful that I'm one of the good guys. I am so grateful that I am not on the bad team. This is the tribe that I'm a part of. I'm a Pharisee, and, and I'm not like these sinners. In fact, look what I do. And he is now elevating himself by his, by his reputation, not the Lord's. He says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. I'm not like this guy. He's on the bad team. I'm on the good team. C.S. Lewis, who pastors probably quote too often, has a, a, a good reminder of how this looks lived out. In his book, Mere Christianity, he has a section all about self-righteousness. And there is a tendency in our lives, as we get closer and closer and closer to the center of the religion, to look at those who are still afar off. And to use their position as a way to elevate ours. And, and, and Lewis says, this is actually a type of a bad person, not a good person. One of the marks of a certain type of bad man is that he cannot give up a thing himself without wanting everyone else to give it up. That is not the Christian way. 
An individual Christian may see it fit to give up all sorts of things for special reasons, marriage or meat or beer or the cinema. But the moment he starts looking down his nose at other people who do use them, he has taken the wrong turning. The reality is, Pharisee, uh, a, a, a devoted person to Christ, is called to give things up. It's a good thing to tithe and to offer your gifts at the altar. It's a good thing to seek the, seek the Lord through prayer and fasting. And it's a good thing as the Spirit leads your life to crucify your old life, to lay things at the cross of Christ that they would be no more. The challenge is your life crucified looks different than your neighbor's. That you lay down things in the call to Christ that are surrender of things that would have enslaved you and other people pick them up as things that set them free. And the second that you make your pursuit of Christ and in relation to someone else's and you see them doing it wrong, you have lost the plot. I uh, think of a story, we, we pray for our missionaries. One of our missionaries who's now uh, stationed in Boise for half the year is why he can teach the Gospel of John on Monday nights. If you're looking for a class to attend that we're, we're doing this, this, uh, this season, uh, Dr. Petticord, Dr. Clark Petticord is teaching through the Gospel of John. And he's also spending part of his time in Berlin where we've been supporting him as a missionary to the youth and the college age there for years. And I always remember a story he told me because he is cross-cultural. He's in Germany and he's in the States. And, and he told me a story in, in regards to contextual self-righteousness. He said there was a group of German believers who get word of what's going on in America. They wanted to pray for them, much like we just prayed for those missionaries. And uh, they're just heartbroken because they found out that these American believers are spending lots of time watching movies. And it's not that they're just um, indulging in movie watching. It's some of these movies are full of violence. Some of these scenes are, are not suitable for those who are trying to cleanse their life. And maybe we can relate to some of the ways that culturally, that seems to be something that we don't judge too harshly. Uh, the Germans hear this and they're so heartbroken that they begin to cry and their tears drip down their face and fall right into big, frothy mugs of beer. <laughs> and, and the idea being, uh, American Christians hear what they're doing, and they're like, you should pour out your beer and go to the movie. We are so worried for you that there is this disconnect in your following. And it's a tendency that is in all of us, that as Christ sanctifies and grows us and brings us to himself... We lay things at his feet as an act of worship, not as a reason to be lifted up. This is just the humbling process that he takes us through. And the temptation is to look at others who have not yet gone as far down the road in the discipleship of Christ and say, I'm so glad that I am not like those people. And now we have the surprising telling of who is the hero of the story. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Humble yourself, and you'll be lifted up. As James gives the, 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 the call to draw near, he says, draw near to God, and God will draw near to you, and come and lament and mourn and, and have a, a poverty of spirit because in light of the greatness of God, who are we to not confess our unholiness? 
Spurgeon says, the nearer a man lives to God, the more intensely he has to mourn over his own heart of evil. As you draw near to God, you are humbled. As you draw near to religion, you are prideful. And James says, let it not be so. And now Jesus will remind us of which matters. The Pharisee and his religion or the tax collector and his call for mercy, I tell you, this, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. There is the paradoxical promise of the morning. You lay down your life to find it. You let go of your life to save it. You humble yourself to be exalted and comparing yourself to other people and identifying the good tribe versus the bad tribe is not how the kingdom of God exaltation will ever work. And now we come to a second proverb or wise saying that James is going to offer us because it's an extension of the first. So rereading the first proverb, he says, he speaks, he who speaks evil of a brother judges his brother and speaks evil of the law and judges the law. There's the riddle. How, is I, how am I speaking evil of my brother have anything to do with judging the law? Now the second proverb. If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. So now let's allow the book of James once again to teach the book of James. What is James getting at when he says that you're not a doer of the law? Well, first question is, Crash course, what are we talking about the law? Are we, are we talking about every tenet of the law as, as, as mapped out in all of the growing ways that the Torah explained what the law was? Well, Jesus came on the scene and brought the essence of the law back to the people, and James reminds us in James chapter 2 what the law is. If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself you do that, you do well. This is the law. Do the love of neighbor as the law that you're committed to. But why did that come up in the book of James? Why did James remind his audience what the royal law of love was? It's because they were showing partiality. It's because they were judging, the church that James was writing to was judging who sat where and who got what. And that's why he follows up the statement, James chapter 2, verse 9. If you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So loving your neighbor is especially true if they're rich, but not poor. Loving your neighbor is especially true when I really like my neighbor, but not so much when they're crazy, annoying, and rude. Loving my brother in Christ is really nice when we have the same political views, the same ideas about how to raise a family, the same ideas about what to leave at the altar and what to call Christian liberty, but it gets really tricky when they're really far off and we're just different. Now you have become a judge of the law. Now you're taking the law of love, to love God and love people, qualified in the example of Jesus that came for the whole world. Not to condemn the world, but to love the world that anyone believed in him would not perish. And you're saying, well, not so fast. Are we, are we really sure? And this is one of those human nature moments, once again, that takes us all the way back to the beginning of the story of God. There's something inside of us that wants to judge what the law really is. Because in the beginning, there was only one law. Don't eat that fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Do everything else, but don't eat that one. One law. 
And what happened? Did God really say? Why don't we get a better read on what that actually means? Can we, can we dissect what he meant by you're going to die? Let's talk about that for a second. And so the story unfolds, as you know, and we judge the law and we don't do the law and the law unravels and there needs to be laws on top of laws. So the spirit comes and reveals a new law. Here's 10 of them. Just do these 10 commandments. Here's the law. And it's like, okay, what about, is there any exception to this? And so we get a law that grows into 600 plus laws to understand laws by the time Jesus comes and says, what's the essence of the law? Here's an example in the wild, and we've shared this before, but if you've ever flown anywhere in the last 30 years, you know that there's laws on top of laws on top of laws just to fly. One of the best examples is when the the flight attendant gets on the the PA and says, "Um, please don't smoke on this plane. And then she says, you know, and also don't mess with our smoke detectors because at some point the law to not smoke said, well, don't smoke when you're in your seat, but you go to the bathroom and you can have a smoke. And it's like, well, okay, we're going to have to put smoke detectors in there. It's like, yeah, but if they're not on, then am I really breaking the law? So you disable the smoke detector. And then it's like, please stop unarming our smoke detectors and stop using e-cigarettes and stop vaping because every time we set a law, you find a new way to judge the law and not do it. And so it is. Love your neighbor. And we live in the, the, the modern law, and everyone's like, it's simple. It's love God and love your neighbor, except that even as Jesus brought back the essence of the law, there are lawyers who would stand up and say, are we so fast? Not so fast. There is a lawyer who stands up as Jesus is, is teaching. He says, what is the law? How do I inherit life? And Jesus is like, you're a lawyer. This is not like a litigation lawyer. This is like a guy who studied the law. He's like, what do you got? You've been studying it all your life. You've been judging the law all your life. What's your reading of it? And what does he say? Luke chapter 10, the lawyer answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Bam, A plus, pass the test. You pass the test. What's the law? What's the mission? What's the simplicity? It's not about religion. It's about relationship. Love God and love people. And yet, the lawyer 2,000 years ago passed the test and then reveals the true heart of a human pursuit. It says in verse 29, but he wanting to justify himself. I, I, yeah, it's, it's, it's to love God and be totally devoted and love my neighbor. But if I'm really going to be able to do this in my own strength, if I can really justify my adherence to the law, I'm going to need to know something. Who is my neighbor? Let's get down to the, let's get down to the nitty-gritty. Are we talking like five houses down? <laughs> like, what are we doing here? Are we talking like uh, neighbor with the same language? Are we talking neighbor with the same look? Are we talking like, what are we talking here? And I, you, all of us will come to a place when the essence of the law meets your pride and you say, uh, can I ask a qualifying question about how this is actually supposed to apply to my life? And Jesus gives a parable, big idea in story form. And he tells a parable that you've all probably heard. We call it simply the Good Samaritan. And he says, okay, think about it this way. 
There's a guy that gets beat up and robbed and left in a ditch to die. And then a priest sees him and he walks around him and he keeps going. And then a Levite, another religious person, sees him and he walks around him and he keeps going. And then a Samaritan, who in their view is a character who is not religious, helps him. He puts him on his dime, on his donkey, on his, on his payroll, and mends him back to health. So lawyer, so religious church, who is the neighbor? The, the lawyer is posed with this question at the end of the story. Jesus says, which of these do you think was the neighbor to him who fell among thieves? And the lawyer said, the one who showed mercy. And here's the point that Jesus was getting at, that James is telling us, that solves the riddle. So go and do it. Then you go and do likewise. Stop studying the law with a fine tooth comb to figure out where the boundaries are. Stop trying to figure out and deconstruct church to the point where you don't do church. It's like, yeah, I, I, I like Jesus and I like God. There's a bunch of laws in there that talk about me being part of a, you know, a community and loving one another and the gifts to be shared. And you know, I'm not sure I'm there yet. It's like you've deconstructed church and you've judged the law of how we're supposed to be in each other's lives so much that you just stop doing it. And it's not just loving God and loving people. It is every God-given glorifying expression for how we are supposed to treat each other in the name of Jesus. It's how we're supposed to be kind and long-suffering, how we're supposed to show patience, how we're supposed to offer forgiveness. Every single one of those Jesus moments in your life will come with a question, are we sure it goes this far? Are we sure that this boundary is, is, is the extent of it? Because I'm not comfortable Living that out. Here's another example of the same judgment of the law. And we get this in the Apostle Peter. And this one's worth looking at because we're going to get one of those parables that will unlock us for this. He says, Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall, I, shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Isn't Peter, isn't Peter gracious? Seven? He's a good guy. I have like three or four. Peter's like, what do you think, Lord? How often? And by the way, I'm doing seven Sunday special, six tomorrow. Take it now or leave it. And is, is that not our execution of the reading and the preaching and all of the church activity? It's like, okay, I believe it. I've got faith in it now. What areas of my life is this supposed to apply to? Because it can't be all. It can't be everyone. I mean, these are a lot of crazy people out there. And what Jesus is about to say is that his boundaries are not our boundaries. This entire sermon is framed underneath the exercise of humility. And if you can love people in your own strength with your comfortable boundaries, and you can offer kindness, and you can offer forgiveness in your own strength, you have nothing to be humbled about. But the reality is, is that the Lord that we serve loves people way more than you do. And he forgives people at far greater detail than you do. He has more mercy and he has more patience. He has more kindness. And he says, follow me. And there's going to be a point in your life where you have a decision to make if you follow Jesus according to your strength or his. And when you only go as far as what your boundaries are comfortable with, you have nothing that's bringing to your knees in humility saying, Lord, I cannot do this. But I trust as I go low and go so far beyond where I would take my own personal religion, I'm trusting that you'll lift me up. 
I'm trusting that your forgiveness will work, that your judgments of people will be better than mine. And the reason that we need to get this right is because as the lawyer missed out in a story form what this looks like in his life, Peter's going to get another story of the danger of, of what this looks like. Jesus says, okay, here's another parable. There are two people. The first parable, we had two sinners. Now we're going to have two servants. To answer Peter's boundaries question, Jesus says, let me give you a story of two servants. And for the purposes of our time and just to speed it up to our own kind of cultural relevance, imagine a debt so great that it could not be paid off. And a master came to, to, to clear the debt. He's like, here's how much you owe me. And, and, and as I look around, let's just say a number that most people would be astronomical. Let's say $10 million is the debt. And you need it today. And the guy's like, I'm at your mercy because I don't have it. So Jesus wants us to understand his boundaries. And he says, the master forgives the servant. I forgive you. Your debts are cleared. Now, the story takes a turn towards all of our pride because the servant then goes and finds a peer. And for the purposes of our cultural relevance, let's say that uh, the person that had just been forgiven found it a, a, someone that owed him $100. $100 is a forgivable debt. I don't care who you are. It, it's money you'd like to have, but it's forgivable. And when the man was unable to pay, he strangles him and he threatens him and he, he, he tries to throw him into prison. This is the danger of judging the law. Because in this man's view, the law of forgiveness and mercy and grace didn't apply. And Jesus is going to give a, a reality, a, 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 a sobering reminder of what that looks like in our life. He says in Matthew chapter 18, the master, after he had called him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you begged me, should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had compassion on you? Here's the wave of humility that should hit us. You've been forgiven 70 times seven. The Lord did not find a boundary of seven times or eight times or nine times or 10 times in the way that you fell in the pursuit of his righteousness and he picked you back up and said, forgive you. Sin abounds, grace abounds more. We are all amazing gospel receiving debt freed people in the name of Jesus. And we all, in our pride, forget it. All of us, in our pride of, yeah, God, you've given me your grace. And now I look around and I'll give you my boundaries. The grace does not extend. If we want to be lifted up in God's way, we cannot force his hand on other people. God does not need us policing his people, policing his forgiveness, policing his mercy. God needs us to be amazing, debt-freed recipients of his grace that see grace everywhere we look. And now the third proverb. James chapter four, verse 12. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy who are you to judge another? 
I'm so grateful that we've called this series The Gospel on the Ground because it has given me a conviction every week to try to find the gospel moment of the passage of scripture that we're reading, and this is it. The gospel means good news. The gospel means we believe in a God that has a different kind of story than one you find anywhere else in the world. In the world, you will be judged. And all of the judgment we find in the world will be to your condemnation. There's lots of judges. In fact, you leave this place and you're going to be judged. Are you a follower of Jesus? Judgment for you. You believe in, in, in a, a glory that outweighs the pain of this life? Judgment for you. You believe in the wisdom that comes from above and is not self-seeking? Judgment for you. And here's the amazing good news about that. Part of that is burdensome. You don't know the judge that gave the law and the judge that has the power to save and to destroy. You walk into a world that will crush you with its judgment. The court of public opinion is waiting for all of us, waiting to put the burden of shame and guilt and condemnation on all the reasons that they can rightfully judge a sinner like me. And yet, the gospel says, the judge that gave the law is able to save there is a judge that sees your sin and your fault not as a way to continually condemn you, as a, as a way to elevate himself, but he sees your sin as a way to save you. He sees your sin as a, as a call to the salvation that he freely gives to you. And now we have our final parable for humility in this. This is an exercise in humility because the problem is as we find in, in a story we're about to look at, we're not as excited about the gospel as we think we are. <laughs> There's a tendency that all of us have to look around and say, I'm not sure the gospel is actually for them, though. <laughs> the, the law that can, that can go out is, is for condemning. It's certainly condemning my enemies, isn't it, Lord? Isn't it certainly to condemn those I disagree with? We don't see eye to eye. Or they're so theologically off or they're still afar off from you. Isn't there, a, isn't there a law that will come and put them in their right? Yes, the lawgiver has the power to destroy, but the lawgiver desires, desires that none would perish. He's not like us. We want people to perish. We want people to go down under the burden of their shame and their guilt. And now we have a parable. Another really famous parable, by the way, so I take the liberty to summarize this. This is often called the parable of the prodigal son. And you want to talk about a story of the grace of God in character form. It is the prodigal son. Just to, to, to recap it quickly, remember there was a son who wanted all of his inheritance now. And the whole chapter, Luke chapter 15, is about the joy of when you find something. And maybe that's why it's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, because I lose stuff all the time. And Jesus gives these parables to build up the human emotion that comes when finding something. So imagine you, you lost a little bit of money. It's like, oh, I found it. How, that's exciting. I found the money I lost. And then maybe a, something even you know, more exciting. You, you lost some livestock. You lost something that could get away. It's a little harder to find. It requires a little more effort. You find a sheep. It's very exciting. Two pictures to the real point of the story, which is what happens when you lose a person? What happens when a father loses a son? What happens when a mother loses a daughter? What happens when you lose your friend and you lose them 
Not because they died, but because they wish he never existed. And that's the story. The son comes up to the father and says, I want my inheritance now, as if you're dead to me. And then he takes all the money that the father freely gives him, and he goes to a far-off country to say, basically, I'm starting a new life without you. And the story of redemption is that the son comes to his senses. He loses everything. He finds the, the sweet spot of all of life when he's humbled. And he remembers that his father's good, and he comes to return. And maybe the best part of the story is that when the father sees him still afar off, he runs to him. A picture of the heart of God for those of you who are afar off, way in the back, watching online, distant from God, the opposite of self-righteous, self-condemning. God is so crazy about you that he wants to meet you. And in, in the, the second you make a move towards him, he sees you and his grace abounds. And why do we share that story? Because it's actually a parable of two sons. There's a second son who is so bothered by his father's love. He looked at that redemption story and it says he comes in and he hears a party because as the father welcomes in the lost son, he gets everybody to throw a feast and he puts robes on him to identify him as, as his, his own son and he gives him the fatted calf. It's the best feast you could offer anyone. And the older son hears all of this and says, what? I'm better than him. Look what he says. Lo, these many years I have been serving you, and I've never transgressed your commandments at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I, make, that I might marry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours comes, who has devoured your livelihood and your harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. Speaking evil, judging him, and judging the father. And there's a tendency in all of us as the gospel invades the darkness of this world that we look back and think, I've been here the whole time. Who are these people? Who is this person? Who is that tribe? Who is that church? Who is this community that they would receive the grace of God to such a measure that they would be celebrated? Celebrate me. And the question that James asks is, who are we to judge? God's love is bigger than yours. His forgiveness is greater than yours. His mercy is richer than yours. And he will save surprising people. And we have a decision to make. In our pride, do we join in the feast? Or do we stand afar off thinking, I was better the whole time? I love the answer of the father. He said to him, son, you are always with me. And all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad. For your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. The gospel says, praise God for every soul that is found. For all the forgiveness they're required and all the cleansing they still have to do, we are not people who look out and say, what are they doing at this church? What is that person doing in this circle? I've been here the whole time and now they just come in with grace? An exercise in humility is an exercise in faith. You trust the power of God's gospel to bring a revival to the world, and he will lift people. He will lift churches. He will lift communities. He will lift you. You do not have to fight for your feast. You just have to trust God.
And we have to answer a question. In fact, I think you can answer it in three ways. James says, who are you to judge? Well, we looked at three parables, and each parable had two people. We had two sinners, we had two servants, we had two sons. There is a prideful sinner, there is a prideful servant, and there is a prideful son. And everything you do in the pursuit of God is actually in the pursuit of your own elevation that you can do. But there is the second. There is the sinner who says, I'm nothing but what I am by the grace of God. There is the servant that says, my debt has been cleared. Who am I to hold it against anyone else? And there is the son that says, Father, I have sinned against you and of heaven, but I am willing to come back. So who are you? I'll finish with one final verse to give us all the great confidence that this is the gospel. It says in Romans chapter 8, Who can bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. Religion can be a burden. Brothers and sisters, judging one another can make all of us feel hardened towards God. Living under condemnation is, is, is heavy. But the gospel good news says there's one guy, there's one lawgiver, and he has the power to save, and he has the power to destroy, and it's Christ who died and rose again. So who are you? Who are you as a sinner, as a servant, and as a son or daughter of the king? I hope you'll answer that question before the Lord, and maybe that will come to you now in a moment of worship. Lord, what does it look like to be humbled in your sight? What does it look like to trust in you and not myself? What does it look like to be lifted up, to be blessed by you and not by competition? Who are you? Let's stand in worship.